Welcome everyone to day two of the first ever Compliance Week Financial Crimes event. I'm Julie DeMauro, the Director of Compliance Programs and Training at Compliance Week. We have an engaging and valuable content uh, coming to you today from distinguished speakers from across the country who will share their experience and knowledge on the most pressing needs of financial crime matters and tell you about the latest strategies, technologies, and tools to ensure the financial crime security for your enterprise. I want to offer a sincere thank you to our sponsors for this event. They are OneTrust, StoneTurn, Jumio, Refinitiv, SoCure, and Lowenstein Sandler. Now let me tell you a little bit about our engagement hub. The engagement hub is where you can access all sessions. You will have access to the engagement hub and sessions for up to 12 months. To access the engagement hub, you will use the same link that you use today for future access. Additionally, your session console has many interactive features. At the bottom of each console are icons to access these features. Some features include the group chat box in which you can communicate with other audience members, plus a Q&A box where you can ask the panel questions about their session, a CPE quiz area, that you will be required to complete before being able to download your certificate and more. In each session console, there is a widget that will link you to the next session. To find this widget, please look at the bottom of the console for the icon of a finger pointing to the right. This will pop up the widget that will direct you to the next session. Speaking of CPE credits, to earn them, you will need to watch the full 50-minute presentation for each panel and then complete the CPE quiz in the console. Once you have done both of those, a certificate will automatically be generated, and you can download the certificate of attendance widget. You will also be able to download your certificate right away. Additionally, it will be available for download in the thank you email that you will receive after the session. You can view the session on demand for up to a year, and at any point you can take the quiz even if you do not do so today. Please note that CPE credits are not offered for our keynote or our fireside chat presentation. Now a little word about resources. There are related resources in each session, so please download them for your further reading and learning. We'll be seeking your feedback after the event, and I truly hope you'll take the time to share your thoughts with Compliance Week. Now, without further ado, let me transition into our keynote session for today. Our keynote speaker is Robert Mazur, who worked undercover as a successful mob-connected money launderer who helped manage the illicit fortunes of organized crime leaders. He was taught the most effective methods of laundering by the best and brightest corrupt bankers, lawyers, businessmen, and financial service providers. In his speech today, Mr. Mazur will share important details about the types of transactions patterns, geographic areas, products, and businesses he and other highly sophisticated launderers used and others continue to use to service the $2 trillion every year in illicit funds seeking secrecy from the government. Mazur is a court-certified expert in money laundering and the New York Times best-selling author of The Infiltrator, a memoir about a portion of his undercover life as a launderer. Mr. Mazur's session will be moderated by Allie McDevitt, a well-known and highly regarded writer on our editorial team at Compliance Week. 
who has a background in education and college consulting. Prior to teaching, she was an editor and author at Thomson Reuters, where she reported on private equity and venture capital activity in emerging markets and edited content on inter international business, legal, and regulatory developments. Without further ado, I turn things over to Allie. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you, Julie. Um, I'm just here myself to introduce Bob, and he's going to take it from here for the next bit of time. Thank you so much, Bob. Okay, so I'm hoping everybody can see that, uh, that slide, and if not, let me know. But I'm very grateful for this uh, opportunity to share time with you today. Um, I'm blessed to have this platform to speak from, a, a platform built on a book published in 10 languages and the basis for an internationally released film. But make no mistake about it, uh, that platform was built by a team, uh, a team at the height of the operation uh, that included 250 public servants. I'm very proud that I earned a, a leadership role, but without that team, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. In, in my undercover role as a mob-connected money launderer, I climbed through a portal of the real world into the underworld at a level that I don't think very many people ever ha have journeyed. Um, I, I was taught by the brightest corrupt bankers, lawyers, businessmen, and financial service providers. Uh, they taught me much, much more than uh, I, I thought I knew about money laundering through my government training. I want to explain that journey and share some of that information with you. But most importantly, I want you to, to understand how much this, what I saw then, impacts what we see today. Um, it's very much alive and well. Let me give you a little bit of a background concerning myself. I was an agent for 27 years. Five and a half years of it is the story of the infiltrator. The first half of my career, uh, more than 14 years, I, I did no long-term undercover work. I was part of a task force, and we were trying to identify the most influential money launderers impacting the success of the Medellin cartel. And we recognized, ultimately, with the um, moderate success that we were having, that we needed a new tool in our toolbox. And that new tool was a long-term undercover technique. So I volunteered to be a long-term undercover agent. Uh, I, I did because I recognized at least it, it was my perception that I'd be able to do this maybe a little bit uh, easier than some of my colleagues because my background is a little bit different. I'm not a criminal justice major. I was on my way to becoming a CPA. Um, I was a business administra administration finance major. I had almost all the accounting I needed for my CPA to, to, uh, to get an accounting degree. Um, and then I decided to go into law enforcement. I'd worked in a bank and a brokerage firm. I know the business world. So I don't have to fake that. Um, and you want to fake as little as you possibly can when you're doing long-term undercover. So then I went through the undercover schools, which in my view saved my life. Um, the, the, the tools of the trade of long-term undercover taught to me by the trainers, experienced long-term undercover agents and psychologists helped me to understand how to maneuver through this journey of a double life for years on end. After that was done, I was given a year and a half to put together what I think is one of the most sophisticated fronts that's been used in, in uh, money laundering. And I say that because unlike many uh, government undercover operations, uh, these were not storefront companies. Through the help of three informants, I was embedded in real businesses, businesses that are very often uh, exploited 
to launder an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business, an air, uh, excuse me, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East Coast, an air charter service with that. That's a picture of me in front of a Cessna Citation II that was one of the assets of the private air charter service and a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I didn't have to be the very best undercover agent in the world. I was blessed with with insightful management that put, helped to put this together. Great trainers, good opportunities, a good team. And, and it's because of that that we succeeded very much like the teams that you're on. Um, you know, you you just can't go it alone. Um, and and to build a team that will all pull in the same direction is a difference maker in whatever endeavor you're going to do. There were also passive reinforcements that others saw with respect to me. Um, you know, if you're an Italian-American and supposedly associated with organized crime, you don't go around telling people that. They have to see and, and feel it. Um, so I was a member of social clubs that you either had to be a politician or a gangster or both in order to be a, a member. And a lot of the trappings that you see, things of wealth, homes, cars, um, I, I was given the assets that I needed to get or figured out how to get them in order to uh, be able to succeed in that. With all of that together, my partner and I uh, in, went undercover for two years and recorded roughly 1,200 conversations, not just with drug traffickers and money launderers, but also with, with uh, senior executives of what was the seventh largest privately held bank in the world, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Those recordings were the cornerstones of the prosecutions of the bank and more than 100 individuals. Um, and 30 days after the undercover operation was over, unfortunately, uh, when my identity had to be disclosed to the defendants and their, their lawyers, uh, two law enforcement agencies and an intelligence agency reported that there was a contract on my life. So my wife and I and my two children, ages 11 and 13, uh, went underground for quite a few years. That was difficult for them in many different ways, especially since during the first two years of that I really had to prepare for trial and then travel around the United States and foreign to testify in trials. The longest trial was six months. Um, and in that trial, I got on the witness stand in the middle of March and I got off in the middle of June. I was on the witness stand every single court day uh, for three months. Uh, after that, I was recruited to go into the Drug Enforcement Administration to do another long-term undercover operation. Totally separate from this story today, um, I developed another identity, other companies, uh, and spent two and a half years infiltrating the Cali cartel of Colombia, as well as some corrupt politician, excuse me, some corrupt uh, professionals in, in Panama. Now, that'll be the subject of, of a book that'll come out in 2022 called The Betrayal that, that, um, that I've written. And after that, uh, I decided I had enough of this <laughs> and went into the private sector and found the 10 brightest law enforcement officers I could uh, to work with, as well as law enforcement officers, intelligence uh, officers outside the United States. And we provided enhanced due diligence for global uh, companies and uh, financial institutions and law firms. Now I strictly research 24-7, uh, do expert witness work, consulting, speaking, uh, and writing. But let me introduce you to some of the people that I dealt with. Um, the highest level person I dealt with at the Cali cartel is Santiago Uribe. At that particular time, he was really not overly well known. Um, he, a university professor, um, he dealt quite a bit with the Senate uh, in Colombia. He wrote the paper that was the basis for the non-extradition uh, law that stopped the extradition of Pablo Escobar and others to uh, to Colombia, actually uh, to the United States. Actually, he was the primary consigliere to Pablo Escobar. 
Um, I met with him for days on end in Europe to review money laundering systems before they were accepted by the cartel. Um, killing people was uh, a daily event um, for the cartel, and this particular consigliere uh, asked us to kill people as well as um, um, that. that uh, it's just a very different kind of people that were out there. Um, the next highest person that I dealt with uh, is played in the movie by Benjamin Bratt, um, Roberto El Caino. He was about 15 years older than me. He was a respected uh, high-end jewelry store owner in downtown L.A., uh, had various other businesses uh, that are listed there. And um, in reality, uh, he was a multi-ton cocaine transporter um, for the Medellin cartel. Some say that I became somewhat the son that he never had. He had two daughters, a wife, and three girlfriends, and I knew them all well. Um, but my relationship with him led to his endorsing me and, and getting me accepted to quite a few uh, through to uh, quite a few people in the cartel. My highest uh, level client was a fellow by the name of Gerardo Moncada, who was a college-educated engineer. Uh, at the time, very under the radar for law enforcement in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. He um, actually ran, uh, he was a manager of 60% of Pablo Escobar's routes. And um, in we, I dealt with his organization in eight cities uh, in the United States, each city con producing about $20 million a month. So $160 million a month just from those cells. They also had cells that were operating in Canada and Europe. Um, so the amount of money going through Gerardo uh, Moncada's organization was quite huge. For those of you who are narco fans, the last two episodes of year one speak about Gerardo Moncada and another client of mine, Fernando Galeano, who were the major managers for Pablo Escobar. Uh, they were assessed at a war tax by Pablo um, that started off at about 200000 a month. It, it went up to a million dollars a month and was rising. So as most people who were oppressively taxed do, they evaded income uh, and put money aside. Unfortunately, Pablo Escobar uh, learned about that, uh, had them brought before him. Uh, this was while he was at uh, the, uh, the cathedral, which was his uh, home, made, his personally made jail. And they tortured them for two days. They hung them by their feet. Uh, they stripped their clothes off. They used blow torches to melt the skin off their bodies. They chopped them in little pieces, and then they burned them into ash. No one has ever found them. Uh, almost immediately, Escobar and his Sicarios chased down their family members, their workers, killed about a dozen and a half, uh, strewn their bodies all over uh, the streets of Medellin. And it was basically the beginning of the war that ended in Pablo Escobar's demise. Um, so how did I get to the Bank of Credit and Commerce International? Well, the money laundering system that I had put together um, paid out as they wanted in dollar wire transfers and checks. But uh, as time went on, they made it very clear that they really didn't want those U.S. dollar checks and money orders to come from banks located within the borders of the United States. The law enforcement authorities have much easier access to that type of information. They really wanted me to get those accounts established in Panama. Well, some law enforcement agencies might contact a major bank, let's say a Citibank or HSBC in, in their security department and open up an account in Panama, an undercover account, 
that a very select number of secure people would know about. I was opposed to that. I, I explained to my office that, listen, I've put this Bob Musella character and his businesses together over years and years of time. I think it's important that we simply let me do what all people who need help from a private client division of an international bank do. Let me reach out to them and have a meeting and get an account. I happen to be driving down. So, so these are the reasons why they wanted me to have a Panama account, uh, less access by law enforcement. The final punchline of what, what they told me was, listen, we own General Manuel Noriega. There's no way he'll let law enforcement get to your accounts. Uh, he, we, we pay him. Um, and so you got to get him opened up in Panama. So I'm driving down a main road in, in uh, Tampa, which is kind of a mini version of Brickell Avenue in Miami. And I see this big sign, gold sign that says Bank of Credit and Commerce International. I guess the moral of the story is they shouldn't have bought such big signs because had I not seen that sign, I wouldn't have called them. And I called um, a gentleman who was in the private client division in the Tampa branch, and I explained to him that I had my clients were all from many in Colombia. Uh, I had a responsibility to assist them uh, in the movement of capital. They had very uh, active businesses creating large amounts of capital in the United States, and um, I, I needed to get an account in Panama. So he said, well, well, we'll give you a meeting, but we need three bank references, three business references. And we also uh, want your resume and copies of your accounts to show there's a, a current account so that we know there's a million in play. Gave them that, got the meeting, and um, explained to him, as I said, that uh, I was this financial advisor. I also said that um, I needed to help them to move their capital across borders in a very quiet way. We don't like governments to know what we're doing. And he said to me, well, this time you want to get money in, do you also have to help them to get money out? And I said, yeah. And he said, is it in cash? I said, well, that's what I get, but you know, we do need to get that, the value of that out. He said, well, that's the black money market. We have many account holders who have those types of needs. We used to have them open up their accounts in Grand Cayman, but now there's a treaty between the U.S. and the Grand Cayman. I knew the treaty. It had to do with drug accounts, uh, drug trafficking-related accounts. He said, you know, we really recommend Panama, and you don't even have to go there. We have branches in 72 countries. We have all the paperwork here. We'll fill, it, fill that out here. We'll pouch, send it by pouch down to Panama. And then we'll have an account uh, relationship manager assigned to you down there. But I'll coordinate everything from here in Tampa. And um, so I was in shock. Uh, I, I couldn't believe that, <laughs> that this was being offered to me. So I, I, I did what I was taught in the undercover schools. And, and I played a little bit of hard to get. And I, and I just looked at him somewhat seriously and said, you know, this all sounds wonderful, but I really don't know you. And um, I think we need to get to know one another. So I'll open up a domestic account. Maybe I'll put a 50 grand in a CD and have a U.S. checking account here. But uh, before we do anything serious, I think it'd be a good idea for me to have one of my colleagues from Medellin come with us, have lunch. Let's, let's get to know each other and see how it is that we can really help one another. He uh, agreed to that. We had our meeting. I eventually opened up the account in Panama. I'll talk a little bit about how the black money markets work. But in short, the checks that I uh, was issuing from the Panama U.S. dollar account, I signed and they were smuggled to Colombia and they were filled out down there. And sometimes people make mistakes and they did on uh, on two checks. So I got a, a very strange phone call one day at my undercover uh, office and um, it was from my 
Panama account relationship manager, and he said, um, Mr. Musella, we have questions on two checks. One, the amount is different in words and in numbers. It says 103500 and the other one says 103000 Which do I pay? And the other one doesn't have any payee name. So who do I pay on that check? And I said, well, you must realize I have to call Columbia to get the answers. I'll call you back. I called him back. I gave him the answers. And in a whisper, he said on the phone, you know, we need to meet. You're going to get caught. Um, we need we have a much better system than what you're doing. Um, I'm going to be in Miami next week. You know, would you like to meet? Of course I did. I brought my briefcase recorder and we sat down and I recorded the conversation. He had a, he had a wonderful plan. And um, and I said to him, though, you know, you're in Panama. I'm here. Um, the U.S. is all over General Noriega. They're probably listening to every conversation between those countries. I wouldn't be able to speak to you in great detail. Is there anyone here in the United States that works with you on sensitive accounts like mine? And he said, yeah, there, there are two gentlemen in Miami. Uh, do you want to meet him? Of course I did. And I did meet them. And, uh, and they were my points of contact uh, after that. But it began to grow. Um, eventually, I dealt with people on the board level of the bank what had happened in Miami, um, although now I was dealing with the two gentlemen in Miami and the gentleman in Panama, um, there was a problem for Panama in that the U.S. government decided to freeze all dollar accounts of the Panamanian government at the Federal Reserve. That brought the movement of drug trafficking money to a screeching halt in Panama. I went to go see, and I had 750000 of Gerardo Moncada's money that was frozen there, and he wasn't happy. So I, I went to the bank contacts in Miami and I asked them, you know, do they have any alternatives? And they said, oh, yeah, no problem. Um, we've got you know, three, three gentlemen in Paris that you, you can meet, uh, a gentleman in London. I eventually also met someone in the Bahamas. Um, and in the end, I was dealing with probably a dozen face-to-face um, bank with bank officers, all of whom knew the source of the funds. And, and that's the list of, of some of the people who were there. Um, this is a typical transaction for me during those days. Uh, that Those suitcases were received in Detroit, and inside each one of those are bricks of cash, uh, generally in uh, either uh, $5,000 or $10,000 bricks, depending upon denominations, always wrapped in rubber bands, never wrapped in, in uh, bank wrappers. Uh, because these are wrapped on the street. Uh, these are wrapped in counting houses that are run by the cartels. We're going to see a video here shortly, but before we play the video, let me give you some background. And I want to play this because Hollywood has such a better way of explaining things than, than the rest of us do. They can say so much in such a compacted period of time. Um, I, I was really lucky after I retired. I was approached by um, Universal Studios to work as a technical consultant on the movie Miami Vice to work with the director, Michael Mann, uh, Jamie Foxx, Colin Farrell, and some other actors. Um, and in the course of doing that, they did a making of video uh, in part about my involvement uh, as a technical consultant for them. But they talked about the takedown uh, of the infiltrator story. So we're going to see that video here uh, shortly um, as soon as I stop sharing screen. And uh, after it's over, I'll come back on and, and talk about it. We're going to watch that now. Did a lot of very important work that nobody ever saw. FBI Miami. You cannot 
artificially create uh, a, a background without that kind of support, especially in today's day and age with databases that are so readily available to private investigators that might be working for drug traffickers, it's very easy for them to pressure test the background to see whether or not um, you are who you say you are. And we were fortunate enough to be able to make available an extremely high level guy who, when he was in federal law enforcement, had run a money laundering scam on Pablo Escobar's organization and the work he did was part of the evidence with which we indicted Noriega. Amazing that he was about to get married, it was part of a story. So he called up all the guys that he wanted to arrest and he said to them, I'm having a bachelor party at this place at this time. And they were all came along and they herded them all into the place where the bachelor party was taking place and they arrested them all. The wedding invitation read, we invite you to be with us as we begin our new life together. But it was really an invitation to jail for 85 people, several of them executives with an international bank and holding company. The trafficking organizations, the big ones, run their businesses in, in smart, sophisticated ways. And they buy the best they can get in terms of their security, their counterintel, their signal interception. The Indian cartel, their gross receipts were roughly $160 million a month. That can buy a lot of tech support, a lot of lawyers, a lot of private investigators, and it does. If you're dealing in major narcotics anywhere in the country, you're often dealing with men that, are, that, are, that act as businessmen. These people, if they were born in any other situation, would run for Fortune 500 companies. They would be the heads of, uh, of states, they would be governors, lawyers, but they just happen to be in this. Excuse me, because I am very busy. How many things to do, so this will be brief, yes? From the Medellin cartel, they had some brilliant, highly educated individuals at the upper echelons of command and control. Why do people do this undercover work? What, what's the draw? Why do they put themselves at such risk? There's a high. There's an elevated experience. And that's what really motivates them. It's that moment when you know that they believe you 100%, that you have got them, that you have put over this fabricated identity, this fabricated scenario, and you're living it, and you're feeling it, and they're buying it. Okay. Uh, before we get into this next slide, let me just say that um, that was uh, the questions that were being asked there were Michael Mann, the director, you know, why do people do this? It's taken me decades to really figure out um, why. But I became a law enforcement officer for the same reason 99.9% .9 of the officers do. You want to be part of making a difference. My thought about how to make a difference was to be able to get the evidence that nobody else can get in any other way and the biggest cases that I can possibly get. And... Um, I never wanted to get out of the trenches. I didn't want to go into management. I wanted to deal with the, the bad guys. So what really happened to me is something that is a little bit dangerous for a long-term undercover agent to have. And um, when I get involved in training uh, undercover agents, I, I try to bring this thought home to them. What clearly happened to me was information became my heroine. I, I had to get the next biggest hit. I had to get that what I needed to, to, to keep my, my, uh, my goal in life alive. So much so that uh, it got to the point where if decisions I had to make in order to get that next huge piece of information 
Um, I had to do something that might cause me to lose my job. Well, that would be part of the mission, and I'd probably have to make that decision. Or if I had to lose my family. Or, oddly enough, if I had to lose my life. I mean, it was part of the mission. I mean, I had to do it. And, um, and that's the thing that uh, is, is a little bit unhealthy from that side. But the, the, uh, the, the wedding that they talked about, you know, the gifts at that were better than the gifts that I got at my real wedding with my wife, which wasn't, uh, didn't go over very big with her. But um, I was finally forgiven by her when she got the opportunity to stay on set with Colin Farrell for four days. And um, that was quite an, an interesting experience. So she, uh, she enjoyed that. But 30 days before the uh, bachelor party and almost fake wedding, um, this gentleman here on the left, Roberto Alcaino, had by then pretty much told me everything about his operations, including something called a pipeline. And a pipeline is a, a kind of a, a conglomerate of illegitimate and legitimate businesses used to move tons of cocaine at a time. So what I'd learned was, first, where that shot just came up, in Bolivia, in the jungles of Bolivia, there was a, a clandestine lab. There was also airstrips there and an airstrip uh, in northern Argentina. From there, they would truck thousands and thousands of kilos every week um, to a anchovy packing plant in Buenos Aires. And from there, the pipeline began with freighters that took 40-foot containers to uh, the northeast U.S., to Spain, and to Italy. Uh, I got a phone call from Roberto about a month before the end of the operation, and he told me that uh, the load was on the dock and that it was uh, about to come in. I gave the information to Customs and DEA, and they wound up taking down a ton of cocaine um, and him in a warehouse. I was very concerned that he was going to suspect me. Nobody talked to anybody within the criminal organization for four days until uh, and that's just natural. You don't know who's who's being watched or who the cops are after. Um, but eventually, Roberto's wife came to me and told me, um, Roberto's got a message for you and you're the only one he feels he can trust. So here's a list of the distributors, uh, how much product they're holding, how much money they owe. We'd like you to get that money into accounts, pay the lawyers, and then we need to pay the suppliers. So I became, if uh, for those of you who are Austin Powers uh, movie fans, I became mini-me for uh, Roberto Alcano, and, um, and I ran his business really for the, the last 30 days. This is the back of a 40-foot container that had uh, tens of thousands of pounds of anchovies commercially packed. In these boxes, the, the word dipes the boxes that had the cans with the cocaine in it, there was a pinhole in the dot of the eye. And um, that's a can opened. You can see the half kilo bricks. There's uh, lead ingots in there. And then they would put sand in there to get it to the exact weight of a, a real anchovy can. And there's the more than a ton of cocaine that was, uh, that was in the shipment. With the, with the bankers, uh, after we convicted them, and it may not sound like a long time, but they got 12-year sentences, and 12 years to a banker in prison is uh, a lifetime. So they finally decided that they were going to try to provide substantial assistance. And what they told me was, we don't understand why you're picking on us. Well, you know, <laughs> we're not doing anything other than, than what the rest of the international banking community is doing. We didn't work for BCCI all our careers. We worked for this bank, that bank, and, then, um, and, and I named those banks in my book. 
And um, we just took the best techniques that we, we saw in the industry and applied them to our private client division for special clients that we used. And these were clients that, who had money seeking secrecy from governments. And that money comes from all of these different types of things. It could be tax evasion, customs duties, dealing with uh, prohibited nations, sanctioned nations, uh, pilfering public funds, African uh, leaders in African nations do they, doing that, unfortunately, far too often, drug traffickers, even the intelligence community. Um, so what, what, uh, here's, here's the techniques that were being used by BCCI. Um, first, when you walk in the door, if you were a special client like me, you were steered to uh, a law firm to have offshore entities form. Panama, BVI, and Gibraltar were the most popular, but you name it, Isla Man, um, uh, Liberia, many, many different locations were used. There was a hold all mail at every one of the branches, and I think I had accounts at 12 different branches of BCCI. Uh, hold all mail so that the mail would not go across borders and customs would not see it. I had safe deposit boxes in each branch. Uh, those boxes were paid for in cash. They were not in the name of any of the accounts that I had there. They were never debited, uh, costs debited against uh, those accounts because it would link the boxes. The boxes could be used to hold. Uh, money could be used to a courier could go to the Panama branch, give them two hundred thousand. Uh, my account relationship manager would put that in the box, wait for orders from me. Um, gold, you could put anything you wanted in those things. Um, there were offsite locations, especially in Medellin. Every six months, they rented a new house. Uh, you didn't want to go to the branch or be seen going to the branch because then people could link you to the branch. So. Every six months, they'd rent a different house. There'd be uh, officers there with computers that um, they could pull up your account information on. Back-to-back um, -back loans is a technique that they use, and I'm going to explain that in a subsequent slide. Stripping wire transfers, you're all familiar with that. You know, some of the biggest banks in the world helped Iran to uh, conduct transactions despite the uh, U.S. sanctions, and um, stripping wires was a sport at BCCI. Uh, numbered accounts were, were often used, especially in London. There was account, uh, a manager's ledger account that only the manager knew who was associated with the, with the number that was there. Bundling transactions in bank-to-bank -bank transfers. Um, give you an example. There was a branch in the Bahamas, and um, periodically, because dollars could be accepted in the Bahamas, there would be a shipment from um, the Bahamas to Miami of a collective amount of currency that needed to be going to the Fed, uh, allegedly received by multiple account holders that dealt with the Bahamas branch. They would over-report that money coming in. So let's say they were bringing $2 million from the Bahamas. They declare it as $3 million. Nobody at Customs counts that. So now they have a Customs and Monetary Instrument report that says $3 million. So now they can take a million-dollar domestic uh, delivery of cash from somebody like myself, de uh, credit that to an account in the Bahamas, and the money never had to go across the border to get to the uh, to the uh, Bahamian branch. And they did mirror transactions, and I'm going to explain that in a subsequent uh, slide. If you look at the last 20 uh, deferred prosecution agreements, look left to right, and I've read them. I've got them. And when it gets to the issue of techniques that were used, the, the facts of the, of the deferred prosecutions, they match. They match what BCCI was doing. There was just now, just last month, 
the oldest bank in Zurich uh, that was servicing uh, tax evaders. They were using many of these methodologies uh, to hide unreported income. Um, and, and as I say, it's, it's something that happens all the time. And here's a, a good example of it. a back-to-back -back loan, which I told you I would explain now. Um, this is a situation where you start off with cash. BCC, I would have preferred to receive it in either uh, Panama, the Bahamas, or Uruguay. But they would get it and they would send, uh, a, they would credit a, a, a CD in Luxembourg and park the, the cash there. Then, totally separately, no connection whatsoever to that CD on paper, they would issue a loan in another part of the BCCI network to a totally different entity, only they knowing that the beneficial owners of the CD and of the loan uh, were the same person. The, uh, this, the loan was issued based upon the uh, creditworthiness of the, uh, of the entity. And then they also asked me for, and I provided them with uh, documents concerning properties and other things that were bogusly used as collateral. The loan proceeds were then sent to BCCI in Panama City to a BVI corporation. That was moved to Cologne to a Panama uh, company that appeared to be involved in trading businesses. And then that money would then go to the beneficial owner of the funds. After the 90 days, uh, back door, uh, back office entries were done to offset the debits and the credits within um, BCCI to, to make the, uh, the books equal uh, because they loaned out and they received the same amount. Now, why is that important? If you look at the Paul Manafort case, that's not very, very old, where he received, I think, $7 million as an unregistered representative of uh, Ukraine, um, he wound up going through a Cypriot law firm and doing the same type of thing. They created uh, an offshore entity and then brought back the funds as an alleged loan so that um, he, in fact, used the back-to-back -back loan methodologies. Mirror trades. Uh, I dealt with a, a, an entity called Capcom, which was a, um, a commodities trading company associated with BCCI. It had uh, an, uh, an office in London, an office in Chicago, and an office in the Middle East. So I could deliver cash to them in London. They would get the cash moved to Dubai, Bahrain, or Abu Dhabi. It would go into their house account. And in their house account, they would simultaneously make a buy and a sell. For two different entities on paper, but actually it was the same beneficial owner. In their case, they did it with gold futures. And um, they wound up buying and selling gold futures at the same second. So there was no loss. Now the value is sitting on the side where the third party has purchased the gold. They would give them instructions to send the proceeds from the sale of the gold futures to a third-party account that I would control, and then that money would be moved on to the beneficial owners. Where have we seen this type of pattern recently? Well, you've seen it in the Deutsche Bank case. Um, the Deutsche Bank trading branch uh, desk wound up taking in rubles in Russia and buying uh, blue-chip stocks and then selling simultaneously those same blue-chip stocks in the UK and in uh, the United States for British pounds and for U.S. dollars. Um, so it's a, it's a methodology that is alive and well um, that we see in cases. There was $10 billion that was moved uh, 
in the Deutsche Bank case, and it was reported it, they they paid a fine of six hundred and thirty million dollars in connection with their uh, their use of that as a money laundering methodology to get capital uh, out of Russia. Um, I was a, a part of the black market, so let me explain how that works. And the, the easiest way for me to do that is to to say think back to college days and. The only thing I remember in Economics 101 is supply and demand, and that's all you need to know when it comes to operating the black money markets. There are many different ways to work in the black market, um, but I'm going to give you the simple way. So you have a source of dollars. My source of dollars would come from drug traffickers. It comes basically from people in, who are involved in illegal activity. When they want to get their own currency or other currencies, you've got to find people who have a demand for the dollars that you have in supply. And that's an easy thing to find because my demand clients were basically either importers or people who had capital in countries that had capital restriction. Importers in Colombia are constantly looking for dollars. They can't deal in pesos in free zones. And so as a black money market operator, for a fee of roughly 15%, the black market can take in dollars and assure the dollar possessor that they will be able to get them Colombian pesos. So there's a 15% profit. On the demand side, because those importers would probably pay 25% of their money to prepay tariffs, taxes to officially get it, they're more than happy to pay 10% to a black market money operator to buy dollars. In doing that, the black market money operator makes 15% on the supply side, 10% on the demand side, a 25% uh, gain on a swap of a million dollars, $250,000. That's a pretty good profit. Now, there are other ways to operate within the black market. Um, in my second undercover operation, I dealt with the Cali cartel. In my view, they were PhDs compared to the... Um, I'd say, high school-educated money launderers of the Medellin cartel. I dealt with, this is Louis Latouri, who was a uh, financial advisor to import-export companies. The, the Cali cartel used what I call a closed-end system. They didn't wind up dealing with hundreds of different people who were importers and, and have their money flow into their accounts. They, as you saw before, there was a supply and a demand side. But if you don't want to make the 10%, on the demand side from the importers, you've got to create a way to be able to get Colombian pesos. And what they did was they simply worked it um, through a team of black market money operators who used export invoice fraud. Now, how do you do that? Very simple. Um, there is a system in almost every country. Um, in Colombia, it's called the reimbursement of exchange. Reintegrar las divisas. You as an exporter go to your government with documents of exportation that you get from customs and you explain to your government and your banker that you just sold, let's say, $150 million worth of coffee. You sold that to Starbucks. You now have a document of exportation. And this was another gentleman who was involved in that with me, who was a branch manager of uh, Banco Cafetero in Bogota, who worked in this same system of uh, the reimbursement of exchange. 
you now have this document. And I'm going to go on to another slide and explain it to you this way. So here's the deal. You want to repatriate money. You want an immediate exchange of your dollars that are outside the United States, your $150 million from your sale of coffee beans. You're going to get a higher rate of exchange because you prove that you are an exporter. Your government really wants you to bring your export revenue back into your country because you want that money to stay within your borders and, and enrich the value that is in your country. So you are going to give some key elements. You're going to give records of exports, the coffee, documents of exportation. That yellow highlighted uh, document is the key document. This shows that $150 million in coffee beans was sold. And you're also going to have foreign exchange declarations. And all you need to do, you don't even need a foreign account. I go to, in this case, Banco Cafetero. I give them my document of exportation that shows that $150 million in coffee beans was sold. They then know, they notify their branch in, let's say, Miami, that there's going to be $150 million that's going to come in, not for a U.S. account, but for an account in Colombia. Now, the $150 million comes in for credit to Banco Cafetero in Miami, for further credit to Banco Cafetero in Bogota, for further credit to a finance company that represents the coffee bean manufacturer. Now that money is automatically exchanged, and the whole value of $150 million in U.S. dollars within the borders of the United States never goes into a U.S. dollar account. It goes into a bank payable through account, but it's not, so it's not really very traceable. Well, let's talk about those documents. Those documents of exchange are very, very valuable. Let's say there's a legitimate exporter of $150 million, and the value and the price in the export, the export is totally proper. But guess what? They're only going to repatriate half of that. 75 million. They go, the owner of that, those export documents that are not going to be used, goes to the black market and sells them to the people who here nar handle narco dollars. Let's say he gets a 2% fee on the value of those documents. That's $1.5 million off book in the po pocket of the person who legally possessed that extra $75 million in documents of exportation. Those are then used to cover wire transfers that are sent in the same pattern as the bean revenue was sent, and the narco dollars go into the payable through account at Banco Cafetero in Miami, then further on to Banco Cafetero in Bogota, then into the finance company and into the hands of the narco trafficker who now has a perfect cover for their money that's coming in. There are many different ways in order to, to get this type, these type of documents. Um, here's an example. One, and this is something that your due diligence would expose if you've got an account holder who has, is in the export business. If you look closely at the commodities being, being sent, oftentimes they'll overvalue them by 20% or even more. That's a way to get more room on these export documents that can be then sold to the black market to move this money. Or as we explained in the first example with the bean sales, uh, sales company, 
they just don't repatriate everything and they and they get them that way. You could also pay off a customs official, which we did in the Cali cartel, or you can pay off a banker, which we did in um, in the case of uh, the the uh, Banco Cafetero, um, and they would simply pull previously used export documents from other transactions and use them in these transactions because there's no cross referencing of these documents. So that's that system on on over invoicing. I wanted to make sure I mentioned if you have accounts that involve the movement of dollars that impact upon Venezuela, African nations, the Middle East, you need to study the Ayman Juma case. It, is, it, it was groundbreaking because it was the first major case that tied the Colombian cartels, the Mexican cartels, and Hezbollah together. But Ayman Juma, who's pictured there and who is a fugitive, um, had these businesses in various countries. And it's important to take a look at his businesses. You can Google Ayman Juma chart, and you'll get a chart done by the Treasury Department that identifies all the businesses he had, the names of them, and the, and the geographic locations. There's a reason for that, because with respect to the distribution of cocaine into Europe, the route, the most famous route that's being used is movements through Venezuela. Now, Venezuela has both ideological and economic associations with Lebanon, Syria, um, Iran, and also many nations in West Africa that are influenced by Hezbollah, French-speaking. And um, those nations become kind of the Mexico of the um, cartel's use of distribution into Europe, it becomes the transshipment point, those countries become the transshipment point for dollars and drugs, clearly seen in the Ayman Juma case. Um, I want to show you a quick movement of cash, and it's, that, it's the green line uh, that's here. It starts in Africa, the cash delivered in Africa, winding up going to exchange houses in Lebanon. It went into actually the Lebanese Canadian Bank, which is now no longer. <laughs> and um, and much of the money left Lebanon, took this wire transfer route over to the United States, was used to buy literally hundreds of thousands of used cars, generally in the range of the value of 5000 to $10,000. Those were shipped to Africa, where there's a huge market for the sale of used uh, U.S.-made cars for cash, which provided a cover for the infusion of much more drug money. Um, and so you get to see a number of unique um, geographic and business profiles in the Ayman Juma case. China, you need to know... China is the mecca for narco dollars and the, and the movement of illicit funds now. And the reason for that is many fold. Of course, you have Hong Kong and Macau that are very close by where you can dispose of currency. But there are massive, massive free trade zones, the largest free trade zones in the world. And when it comes to trade-based money laundering, free trade zones are it. 
Um, yeah, there are many others that are used, but China is is used for a very specific reason, and that is that their free trade zones are also full of counterfeit goods. There's a case called the Guangzhou Enterprise case, which you should um, also study. It's It shows you um, a laundering of $5 billion in narco proceeds through Guangzhou, through the uh, free trade zones, the purchase of counterfeit goods, then shipped back to Latin America, putting an endless number of legitimate businessmen out of, out of work because they couldn't compete with the counterfeit goods that were coming back that a profit didn't even need to be made on because it was narco dollars and they don't need to make a profit. Um, there are unregulated black market pharmaceutical companies in China. That is very, very attractive to the cartels. Let's think about it this well. I'm going to tell you about that after I give you a couple more pieces of why. There are government restrictions. You can't get 50 to take out $50,000, more than $50,000. So now I'm a, a very, very wealthy person in China and I want to buy a $10 million mansion in Vancouver. Guess what? It's going to be awfully tough for me to do. Can't do it with $50,000 a year. So what I have to do and what I can do is I can buy dollars in Canada because there's a huge dollar surplus there from the sale of illegal drugs. And in return, I can get something of value within the borders. And I'm now a, I'm now a cartel leader. I give up my $2 million in Vancouver. I get $2 million inside the borders of China. And now I can go to an unregulated pharmaceutical company. I can buy all the fentanyl that I want. I didn't have to run the risk of getting my dollars across borders out of one country into another country because I have willing buyers of dollars who are inside uh, China. And, of course, there's limited access to, to uh, due process. Uh, the, you know, wake me up when China finally uh, responds to a grand jury subpoena from the Southern District of New York for bank records. It's just not going to happen. And <clears throat> there's a, a, an accumulation uh, of dollars uh, that, that are now, because of this, these opportunities, accumulating in China that, that are bought and sold back and forth. There is, a, there is just a wealth of reasons for why China is extremely, extremely interesting. One thing, another thing I want to show you is that there are some emerging businesses that are very, very attractive to money launderers. And I have personally seen this. I do consulting work for a global telecom, a tier one telecom that sells to tier two telecoms, uh, broad bandwidth, uh, all types of assets that the two, tier two telecom can use wholesale traffic they can buy uh, bandwidth cloud services they can sell prepaid cards these these uh, tier two telecoms and of course they get into mobile money transfers well guess what all of those products are virtually impossible to measure and what i have personally seen is a substantial over declaring of revenue by telecoms, especially in Africa, claiming that they were paid in dollars because the dollar is flying everywhere in these African nations. They're taking in narco dollars. And in one instance that I personally saw, roughly $5 million a month, and getting that money then transferred over uh, into accounts, moved into the Middle East, and then laundered 
um, on behalf of the owners, much of that money uh, going to accounts, frankly, that are controlled by Hezbollah because Hezbollah has become involved by opening routes for the safe movement of drugs and money uh, and now have gotten involved in the drug business as well. So keep an eye on, on tier two telecoms, especially if they don't have a very long history. Um, and, and it's pretty easy to get information about the reputation um, of these new companies that are coming in um, from established tier one telecoms that uh, they, they know the business. They know who's out there and, and doing these things. So <clears throat> how do we try to deal with some of these problems? I, I get the until COVID, I, I was getting the opportunity to speak to thousands upon thousands of people in the compliance and KYC uh, AML world uh, every year. And I would always talk to them about, you know, what, what seems to be your biggest problem? And, and what evolved before my eyes was what I call the dual bank, uh, the dual brain syndrome that exists in some institutions. Because uh, you have compliance people who establish an effective AML compliance program. They are rewarded based upon, hopefully, uh, a rewarding salary that, that they get uh, for, for doing the great job that they do. On the other side of the house, you have people who are account relationship managers, and their goal is to bring in deposits. And they get rewarded a base salary plus a commission based on deposits. And I don't care how genuine you are. If there's a glass that is, has water in half of it, compliance is going to see it at times as being half empty, and sales is going to see it as half full. I've always asked the question, how many times have you heard this, folks in compliance? Sales saying, you know, these guys in compliance, they don't know this business. These, these, this, 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 this Casa de Cambio, they only take in uh, money from the most reputable people that they've known for decades upon decades. There's no risk here. This is an account that we really need to open, blah, 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 blah. And management oftentimes will side um, with sales. So what do we do about that on an internal solution? I do believe that the industry is in dire need of creating incentives to bring compliance and sales closer together. One way that can be done was told to me by an executive uh, who worked for a private client division of an international bank who said to me, you know, we don't have those problems in my bank. I kind of chuckled and said, I hear that from everybody. He goes, no, as the head of private, the private client division, I had to sign a personal guarantee that if management goes with my team's assessment and breaks a tie uh, where compliance is saying, no, we shouldn't open the account, and we say we should, if the bank incurs any losses, I'm personally responsible twofold. He said, you know, believe me, compliance is now my friend. I have to win them over every single time. I never want that personal guarantee to ever fall down on me. Um, there's another way that I've thought of that, that I think can help. And if I'm an account relationship manager and I come to management and compliance and I say, you know, I really felt we needed to bring this account in. I've been taking a look at this, and I'm seeing these changes, and some of these things are worrying me. I think we need enhanced due diligence. Um, the enhanced due diligence is done. A major account is closed out. What normally happens to that account relationship manager? They're punished because they lose their commission. Can't we set up 
a system whereby that type of loyalty to the reputation of the institution is so well recognized and rewarded that we find a way to be able to provide, at least for a period of time, some weaning away of compensation to that extremely loyal account relationship manager. They need to be involved in some way in not being penalized for coming forward with those types of situations. I think I got it one minute over. We wanted to save a little bit of time for us to be able to do a little Q&A. Um, I, um, I, I take extraordinarily seriously my time that I get to share with you professionals. You make the difference. You're on the front lines. The things you see and the, the risks you assess are the things that have an impact, not just on your institution through its reputation and the reputation of the professionals that are in it, but it also impacts society. You have a tremendously important responsibility. And um, me getting just a tiny bit of your time to, to try to help you to understand that the rest of the world knows that, and we're counting on you uh, to, to really be able to do the important things you do. Um, and thank you so much for giving me your, your time. And uh, if we've had time for some questions, I'm happy to answer. Thank you so much, Bob. This has been a super fascinating presentation. And I'm just going to give everyone who's attending just a moment if they want to come up with a question. We do have one or two questions already waiting in the queue. So I'll start with one. So this is a pretty broad general question, but I think everyone is probably wondering it. So what would you like to see from the compliance industry which would make enforcement of financial crime legislation easier or smoother? Hmm. Well, a lot of times, uh, first of all, I think we need to get away from the tick the box by, by compliance people, by, by not by compliance, but regulators. Um, I think we need to focus on uh, risk-based analysis. Um, when I sit down with an institution and we take a look at issues concerning type of business, type of product, type of transaction, geographic area. We can quickly identify uh, where the cream of the crop of risk is. Um, and so I would encourage people to, to take that route. Um, and I would also encourage uh, regulators to get away from this tick the box culture that they've created um, because it becomes less important to them what's behind the box as it is, did that box get ticked? And, and I think that that's counterproductive uh, to what we can be doing in the industry, both of those issues. Thank you. Another question that came up was, how do you see the evolution of virtual currency fitting into the underworld's money laundering practices? Okay. I, as a money launderer, the last thing that I would use would be um, virtual currency because of a liability that I have. My liability as a money launderer is to receive an amount of dollars and to deliver a set amount of value. And there is too much of a fluctuation um, in virtual currencies basically because there are too many investors that are involved in it. 
There's a fear also, I think, in some, because of the endless number of scams, uh, IPOs that have come out. Um, is there a place for virtual currency in the illicit world? Absolutely. Where does it lie often? The dark net. Take a look at Silk Road. More of the retail-styled sales of, of drugs. What did we see from the Silk Road case? There were actual mail-to-order <laughs> drug traffickers that were there that sold Bitcoin. Uh, that, I mean, that got paid in Bitcoin. Years later, because of searches that were done on the computers and the servers that were owned by or operated by Silk Road, blockchain captured the movement because that's what it is. It's a very, very structured uh, line that you can follow that led to the prosecution for drug trafficking of people who had conducted transactions. So hacking, uh, hacking accounts, uh, people who were already committing crimes on the Internet, I think it's the flavor of choice. For people who are involved in other types of illicit activity and especially on the highest levels of drug trafficking, I don't think it's attractive uh, at all. But you will see, and you have seen, ATMs that offer Bitcoin being used, especially kind of along the lines of what we saw with smurfing, where people would go out and buy cashier's checks in amounts of $1,432. It's, it's there and it's happening, but it's very labor intense. And it's, and it's just has all those downsides that I've explained for the highest levels of, of drug trafficking. Thank you very much. Next question just came in. Have you come across or used nonprofit organizations for money laundering? And if yes, how? Oh, absolutely. Um, let's take something in, in the news as of yesterday. Yesterday, the brother of the current president of Honduras, um, Antonio um, Hernandez, Tony Hernandez, was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years and fined $138.5 million for his involvement, along with other politicians, according to the prosecutor, including the current sitting president of Honduras, in one of the largest drug trafficking organizations that the world has seen. Now, take a further look at Honduras and the money that the United States has continually sent to the country. Those same people who are involved in drug trafficking are involved in creating, through relatives, NGOs in those countries that wind up getting that money that comes from, that's supposed to be used for the poorest of the poor, that come from a richer country like the United States. They create the NGO, and then they disperse probably 90% of it to their own pocket and 10% of it to the people who are in the greatest needs of it. Um, so, you know, NGOs in, in most of the impoverished countries wind up being controlled by PEPs, who then in turn exploit it and wind up stealing the money that otherwise goes into it. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. So you mentioned this dual brain syndrome and possible internal controls or internal solutions rather 
to create incentives to bring compliance and sales closer together. And you talked about two different concepts for that, personal guarantees, and then you mentioned a system whereby um, the loyalty to an institution's reputation um, from a, a salesperson gets rewarded in some way. Which one of those methods have you found to be more effective? Well, I, I know I heard it to be effective by the, the head of the private client division of an international bank when it came to his being his skin, his personal skin being in the game. Um, I haven't found very many banks that have admitted that they have used the second <laughs> method that I, that I offered that was out there. Uh, I always get this kind of foggy look that says, oh, I'm not really sure how we would calculate that and how it could be done. Um, I don't personally know anyone who has, has done that, but it, it certainly needs to be. And, you know, along with that, there needs to be a very, very um, sound, anonymous, whistleblower methodology within an institution that enables someone to be able to come forward and not have to worry about retribution. Um, that I have seen uh, operate in a very successful way. Um, but um, the, the, the system of coming up with a pay scale for somebody who came forward, um, I wish I could say that I've seen it happening, but I haven't. It's an idea right now, as far as I know. Okay, thank you. It's 9.45, but we do have one question that came in that I think everyone would probably be curious about, which is, do you still need to conceal your identity? You know, since the, the movie came out, I've, been, I've received threats again, and um, uh, I'm involved in a project that's going to result in the publishing of another book, um, different names, but uh, about the underworld again. Uh, I really, you know, I find it necessary to do what I do and to have those things put in place uh, for for a couple of different reasons. But one of which, unfortunately, there isn't anywhere you can go to find out whether a contract has been uh, on, on one's life has been revoked. Uh, so uh, I want to be able to continue to speak out. Uh, I, I I feel as though my ability to be able to do that is not in isn't hindered. Uh, by trying to protect my identity. When I go and I do live presentations, we do have a little extra security and I do get some. Uh, it, it's amazing to me how how sympathetic to that problem the industry has been. Imagine this. I have been giving live presentations for more than 10 years, tens of thousands of people. Not once, not one time has anyone intentionally violated the request that I, I ask that no pictures or video be taken of me for security reasons. We had one or two times when <clears throat> people did take a picture of me who happened to be out of the room at the time that the request was made so they didn't hear it. And you would have thought that they were going to get beat up by everybody who was around them. It was, uh, it was a very refreshing and rewarding uh, uh, reaction. And I felt very bad for the people who... Uh, became the focus of attention, but, but, um, but I, I think this is the best way to go forward. 
Well, Bob, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and your invaluable insights. It's really been a pleasure listening to you speak. And I would like to remind the audience that Compliance Week's paid subscribers can access for a period of six months on the Compliance Week website, a separate and different recording made available by Bob Mazur. Thank you very much. And we encourage you to access it at compliancesweek.com. That is pretty much all the time we have for today. So thank you so much, Bob, once again, for sharing all of your insights and your hard-earned experience with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure.